in eight and a half years of serving you as pastor, I have yet to preach a Father's Day sermon or a Mother's Day sermon. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not because we don't think that fathers and mothers should be recognized. Indeed, we do. But we would not put those special days on par with uh, other holidays, holy days like Christmas and Easter that we make much of. Today, I'm going to come as close as I ever have to preaching a Father's Day sermon. And really, it's not as much a Father's Day as much as it's a Father's Day and a Mother's Day, uh, a Parent's Day. It's a two-for-one type thing. Um, But what I want us to do as we think about this is I want us to consider the eschatological aspect of the text. That's a big, long word, eschatological. What does that mean? Well, it probably doesn't mean what some of you might think it means. But if you think back with me to just last week, if you'll remember when we were talking about heaven, I related to you that there is an earthly plane. And above that earthly plane is a heavenly plane. And we, as believers in Jesus, who have put our hope in the gospel, live on both of those planes. Now, these planes are moving forward in time, and one of them is going to come to an end. This one up here is not. That's the heavenly plane. That's the eschatological plane. And so in, in sharing all that with you, what I want you to see is this. You may be an earthly father. You may have children. But you may not. Or maybe your children are up and grown and have moved out of your house. Maybe you're a mother and you have children. Maybe you don't. But in a spiritual sense, in an eschatological sense, all of us are fathers and mothers. All of us are sons and daughters. And so I want us to, to hear from God's word today, uh, not just, okay, only to fathers who have children still living at home, but this is for everyone. This is for all of us. What does it mean to be a spiritual father? Well, note these words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 and 15. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so, this morning, what I want you to do as you hear God's word is to recognize that you're a father, you're a mother. Maybe you're a young person. Maybe you're not even married yet. In some sense, you are going to be a spiritual father one day. And so take these words to heart. Maybe you're a young lady. You don't You don't have children yet. Well, in some sense, you will be a spiritual mother one day. And especially if you do have children at home with you, these words will ring very true to you. What does it mean to be a father or a mother? In a spiritual sense, what does that mean? How can we as a church family, prepare the next generation 
And that's what fathers and mothers do, right? Those of us who have had children at home, what do you do? You're preparing your kids. One day you're, you're not going to be here in this home with us. Are you ready? Are you prepared? Well, this is what we are about here in the Lord's church. How do we do it? How do we prepare this next generation? Well, our text tells us. What does it say? Well, I want to present this to you today in two parts. And first, part one will be an assessment of the historical situation. The historical situation. And then part two is going to be examining the apostolic solution. So let's begin with part one, the historical situation. And what we're going to do is look at the historical context of Timothy and the church in his day and the Apostle Paul. And I think we'll be able to situate ourselves in the text because that's always the goal, brothers and sisters. It's not an old ancient text that doesn't apply. This is our story. We're here. This is talking to us. <laughs> and so rightly considered, I think you'll be able to see yourselves in the text. And we begin by noting the situation of the Apostle Paul. What is Paul's situation as he is writing this letter? Well, conservative scholars are almost unanimous that this was the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. One pastor friend calls this Paul's last will and testament. The historian Eusebius records that Paul's death came at the hands of the Roman Emperor Nero. Probably all of you have heard of Nero, and that name does not bring up good thoughts, does it? Nero was a bad, bad dude. And he died himself in AD 68. So this letter that Paul wrote was either written about that time, maybe the year before, and it was written from prison. Now, this is not to be confused with Paul's letters that we call the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Paul wrote those from Rome when he was really more or less under house arrest. He was able to receive visitors. He, he lived in his own house. It talks about this at the end of Acts 28. He paid his own expenses, and, and people came and saw him, and he was actually able to share the gospel. This situation here is much different. There are some ancient sources that tell us that Paul was writing from the infamous Mamertine prison in Rome, and if you visit that now, it's, it's still a, a place where you can visit. But there's a plaque outside that states that both Paul and Peter spent time in that prison. In the previous imprisonment, Paul had enjoyed a certain level of comfort. Really what he was, uh, the situation there was he was confined. He couldn't leave. He had to stay in that, in that general area awaiting trial. But this is, as I said, much different. Uh, Paul was likely in a single cell at the bottom of what had uh, originally been an old cistern. And they had hollowed this thing out inside, but the top was just a small hole that they lowered prisoners down into. Very poor ventilation, very dark. It was a dungeon, essentially. This is where Paul is writing from. It will be his last 
stop on earth as he awaits execution. And he seems to know this. If you look over at chapter 4, he says in verses 6 and 7, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I, I cannot imagine what must be going through Paul's mind as he writes this letter. What it, what it must have felt like knowing, okay, I'm, I'm weeks away from death, maybe days, we don't know. But he's looking death right in the face and in probably one of the worst prisons in the Roman Empire and so alone. He's been abandoned. He, he talks to, to Timothy in this letter about how so many have left him, so many have abandoned him and the faith he says back in chapter one you are aware of all who are in asia that they turned away from me among whom are phagellus and hermogenes he he also mentions that his only visitor while he was there in this prison was onesiphorus and he specifically mentions demas in chapter four verse ten another deserter and says Luke alone is with me. Good old faithful brother Luke. He's the only one. Everyone is, is either busy somewhere else. Only one other person had come to visit him. Can you imagine how it must have felt? In a sense, we know, don't we? Because it seems like ever so often we get a new story of some Christian leader pastor who's abandoned the faith who's out deconstructing <laughs> trying to find themselves as this happens all the time it's nothing new it it happened in paul's day it's happening in our day and this is the setting where paul writes his last letter addressed to timothy I also want us to take a moment and consider the situation of the church. And let me explain why this is so important. With the death of the Apostle Paul, we most likely have had or are about to have the death of the other 11 apostles. And so we need to recognize the situation that the church is in. It's in a time of transition. Many of the apostles have either been martyred. Some are probably on the verge of being martyred. They will be very soon. The only exception might be if you accept a late date for the book of Revelation. The apostle John may have lived to about 90. Some date that book to A.D. 90. But this is a drastic situation for the church in the first century. All of the original apostles are on their way out. All who had been personally taught by Jesus, and I include Paul in that number. If you remember in Galatians 1, Paul says there that I, I didn't receive this gospel from anyone else. I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And he goes on to explain that he was in Arabia for an undisclosed period. And I believe that that's when the Lord met with Paul. And so Paul is included in that number of apostles who were taught 
personally by the Lord, and now they're all about to be gone, departed from this world. And what's the church going to do? A, a vacuum will surely be created. Now, we might look at this situation with so many great leaders. I mean, these were the church's first pastors, first missionaries, uh, not to mention that God also had given them divine revelation, which we have as our New Testament. And surely, with the departure of such important figures, the church, is it going to make it? Can it last, or, or will it simply dissipate into thin air? Well, that's Paul's situation. That's the church's situation. Let's consider for a few moments the recipient of this letter, Timothy. In the interest of seeing the big picture, I, I want to point out that this letter is addressed to, to Timothy, but it is addressed to to the church it is addressed to us how do we know this well if you look over at chapter 4 verse 24 it says the lord be with your spirit now that your there is singular it refers to timothy right but then that verse goes on the next part grace be with you that you is plural meaning that Paul knows that this letter is going to be read by Timothy probably to, to the church that he's at and maybe other churches. It's going to be circulated. That's what an epistle is. But for a moment, let's consider Timothy. And having read through this letter, this book, many, many times, I get the sense that Timothy is, is struggling I think he's struggling, and as a pastor myself, I totally get it, because it's not easy. And why, we might ask? Well, it's a well-known fact, again, that under Nero, the church uh, probably was going through the greatest persecution that it had seen up to that point. So persecution is, is bitter, it's happening all over the empire, and I'm inclined to think that this would have discouraged Timothy. Perhaps he would have drawn back a little bit and, and maybe not been as boisterous and bold with his proclamation of the gospel. And many, as we've already seen, were wandering away. The, the church had been bombarded by false teaching. Paul addresses this. And I can't help but wonder, to, to some degree, if Timothy has not lost heart, if he's gotten discouraged. Paul tells him in chapter 1, verse 8, and if you want to flip over there, you can follow along with me. Chapter 1, verse 8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Now, why do you think Paul would tell Timothy that? Don't be ashamed of the gospel, Timothy. Don't be ashamed of me. He, he mentioned uh, earlier uh, Onesiphorus, uh, I did, and Paul says in 1.16, he was not ashamed of his chains. So, Timothy, don't be ashamed. And he says, don't get involved in silly controversies 
Flee youthful lusts. Remember your ordination, Timothy, when we laid hands on you. Remember that. These are just some of the exhortations that Paul gives Timothy. And as I said, as a pastor and you, even as a believer, you know what it's like, don't you, to, to go through uh, maybe persecution or, or just observing the, the change in, I guess, what we must call post-Christian America. Even these places out here that call themselves churches, what they accept, what they affirm, they're, they're just in step with the world it's going to get more difficult for us the church will be ridiculed more and more opposition will be more hostile and open and we are going to face greater challenges in the days ahead you can think if you want to that you can stand on the first amendment and the constitution but I hope you're not putting too much trust in that document because we have another document here that the world sees as hate language. It could be very well easily solved with the stroke of a pen that our Constitution is amended and Christianity could be outlawed. Or at least the parts of the Bible that are filled with hate language. So that's the historic situation. And as you can see, it's not much different than ours, is it? Now the question is, what are we going to do? <laughs> What's our calling today? What does the Lord's church do? We as fathers, mothers, what are we going to do? Well, uh, we could just... Sit back and do nothing. Jesus promised, after all, didn't he? Matthew 16, I will build my church. And we could sit back and say, well, Jesus promised that, so he's going to do it. We don't have to do anything. But that is not what we can do. We must answer the call that's given to us here in this text. And I want to show you what I think that is and i'm referring to this as the apostolic solution the apostolic solution given by the lord through the apostle to his church to the the fathers and mothers throughout the church's history both in a in a natural sense but more so in a spiritual sense so, yes, I'm speaking to those of you who have children at home. This is going to be very important that you listen. Those of you who may have children at home one day, listen very closely. But even those who are spiritual fathers and mothers, as Paul was to Timothy, in fact, listen to how he speaks to him in verse 2 of chapter 1, to Timothy, my beloved child. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so, yes, I'm speaking to fathers and mothers who have children naturally, but more so to those of us who are spiritual fathers.
fathers and mothers and to those of you who we would consider to be our children, what is the solution to the crisis that we find before us today? Well, I want to give it to you in three parts. If you will, picture a trident. Uh, that's something that just came to mind, and you might think, really? Something from mythology? It's just a, just a you know, picture something, three prongs, and here's the first. We must recognize the contrast. There's a contrast here that's in our text, and it's essential that we see it. I want you to notice the first two words of verse 10, and they say, you, however. And then if you will, drop down to verse 14. And verse 14, the first four words, but as for you. Now with these two phrases, and I would even add maybe the first part of, of verse 1 in chapter 4, I charge you. There is a contrast laid out here for us, and we must see this contrast and very simply this contrast is that paul is putting everyone over here on one side and timothy is over here on the other this is where i'm putting everybody else in fact if you look at verse 9 the first two words there but they this is all the others who have abandoned the faith who have gone after the world Followed after false teaching. And then over here, there's you, Timothy. And you can't be like them. You can't even associate with them. You're different than them. This is a stark contrast. And so here's what we must recognize. In the Lord's church, there must be men and women but I'm speaking for a moment primarily to men who must stand on the Word of God. And in so doing, you're going to stick out. Not because you're trying to, but you're going to stick out because everyone else is just going to go with the flow. This is what our churches are doing. They're affirming what God's Word clearly says is sinful behavior. And not only that, but they're applauding it. They're promoting it. They're ordaining ministers and priests who live this way. Just as one example, not to mention all the other kinds of false teaching that's taking place out there. And so many of them, whatever the latest and greatest doctrinal fad is, churches jump right to it. And Paul says to Timothy, don't do it. You've got to take a stand. On one side over here, you have those who, Paul says, have an appearance of godliness in verse 5. Verse 7, who always are, are learning, but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. It, it would be easy, Timothy, to just kind of blend in, and that's going to... Uh, you're going to be able to avoid a lot of persecution that way. <laughs> but that's not who you are. That's them. But you, as for you, what do you do, Timothy? 
End of verse 5. Avoid such people. And folks, if we're going to continue in the mission, this is where we are. We've got to join Timothy over here. Don't leave him over there by himself. <laughs> There's a line. There always has been a line, and we've got to decide which side of this line we're going to get on. And there's going to be more over here on this side. That's the wide way, the, the big path. This is the narrow way. And some of you know what I mean. I've, I've lost friends. I've, I've had to leave churches. Some of you may, may be able to relate. When they just kind of go off with whatever that latest doctrinal fad is. And we're going to always have these. We always have. There's always these little things that come up. And, and they're so attractive. They're sparkly and shiny. And, and Christians go, ooh. And Paul tells Timothy, don't. You've got to recognize this. That's what you avoid Timothy, that's what you can't be like. That's where you can't go. But what do you do? Well, on the positive side, what action do you take? Well, here's the second prong in our trident, and it is stay the course. Stay the course. We're not just defined by what we don't do or what we don't believe, but there's something that we do. There's something that we believe. And what is it? Well, let's go back to verse 10. And we'll pick up there, you, however, have what? Followed my teaching. And then again, back to verse 14. But as for you, what? Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Timothy, people are going to jump ship. They're going to do it. Paul knows this. He's experienced it. Timothy has seen this. And when persecution comes, especially, they're going to drop like flies. And it's going to be tempted for you as Christians when you see this to say, have I missed it? Do I go with them? Have I missed the boat here? Folks are going to do whatever to draw that big crowd, say whatever they need to say, tickle the ears. Churches have made tremendous shifts in their doctrine, in their practice. In my life, I've seen it. You could visit a church and go away and come back home 20 years later and go to that church and you wouldn't recognize it. You're like, what? What happened? <laughs> There's an appearance of godliness. They look like learned men, Paul says, but they've rejected the truth. But not you, Timothy. Stay the course. In short, what Paul is telling Timothy is, you've got to be a theological conservative. <laughs> we want to use our modern jargon it's the only way. Theological liberal? Probably somebody who's lost. Most likely. 
Paul says, you know what I taught you. You've been following it. And up to this point, you've been faithful. Don't slip now. Don't, don't get weak. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Stay the course. It's as if as Paul had, at some point had given Timothy a map and said, okay, now here's where you are and here's where you're going and this is the way. And everybody else comes along and looks at that map and says, oh, I know a shortcut. <laughs> There's an easier way. There are no shortcuts, folks. Let me tell you something. If you don't take the way, the Lord Jesus, and the truth of the gospel and God's word, you're going to end up at a different place. Stay the course, Timothy. The church has determined over the centuries, often in the face of theological controversy, to take some measures to help with this. Uh, we almost weekly here at the end of the preaching time, recite the Apostles' Creed. This can be dated back to the 2nd century, maybe the 3rd century. One that we have a little more uh, knowledge about the date specifically is the Nicene Creed. Now, how did the Nicene Creed come about? It came about because of false doctrine called Arianism, a, a belief that Jesus was not eternal, God the Son as God the Father was, and so the church met. They discussed these things. And Arian was branded a heretic, as he should have been. And the church says, this is what we believe. This is what we've always believed, that Jesus is very God, a very God. We can fast forward much further into history, and we have a statement that was given in 1689 an amended version of a confession from 1677 where many baptist ministers put forth a confession with an explanation of baptist convictions but in that statement on matters of scripture the trinity and and other important doctrines they said we haven't changed we've stayed the course Now, 332 years later, here we have a church in Bartlett, Tennessee that holds to that same confession. Think about that, brothers and sisters. We have a church here that is essentially believes the same thing as our, our sister churches in the 1600s in England. It's astonishing, isn't it? And creeds and confessions help us in this way. We, we stay the course. They, they are not Scripture. We do not hold them as Scripture, but they are very helpful. We see the contrast, and we stay the course. And there's one more prong here on the tip of our trident, and it is this. Instill the Scriptures. Instill the Scriptures. Fathers, mothers, in a natural sense, in a spiritual sense, there's nothing more important than you can do for your children. Instill the scriptures. If we are going to continue on in the mission that God has given us, we must remain steadfast in the gospel and instill the scriptures to the next gener generation. It's essential. It is essential that we do this. Look again, if you will, at verse 14. Which says, but as for you, 
continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. I want to point out two things about verse 15. And the first is the word acquainted. Now, that's not a terrible translation, but it's, in my opinion, not the best. How do you use acquainted? Well, we use it in a couple of different ways. Do you know so-and-so? Well, I'm acquainted with them. I'm an acquaintance. So in that sense, it means, well, not really, not very well. But someone might also say, hey, do you know so-and-so? Yes, I am well acquainted. So it could mean that you know them really well or maybe not at all. This is actually in the original, the Greek word, or one of the Greek words for to know. And, of course, the King James got it right, Brother George. And so this is what it says, knowing from whom you learned it. Timothy, you know these things. You know these things. From childhood, you have known the sacred writings. And think about this, brothers and sisters. What's astonishing about this is that Timothy was grounded in the gospel and could articulate it and defend it, and all he had was the Old Testament. Timothy, there's not something new. I don't have any new advice. Go back to what you were taught. You remember when you were a kid. Children, this is a very important moment for you. You're being taught very important things. It's going to come up one day. Don't think that it's not important for you spiritually now. It is. Timothy, you know these things. The second thing I want you to see about this is, is not just the translation of the, the word acquainted, but in particular, verse 14 says, knowing from who, from whom you learned it. Now, this is very important, and we must see this because Timothy learned these things. And if there was somebody learning, that means there were teachers. And who were the teachers? Well, guess what? This from whom is plural. So Paul is probably talking about himself. No doubt he spent much time with Timothy. They traveled together. I'm sure they had hours and hours of conversation about the Scriptures. But he's not just talking about himself. So who is he talking about? Well, if we go back to chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So do you see what's happening there? In a sense, this is more of a Mother's Day sermon or a Grandmother's Day sermon, right? Because there was a grandmother who taught her daughter, who taught her son. So how are we going to... How are we going to pull this off, folks? I mean, I'm getting a little older. I feel it every day. And every generation, the church is confronted with this situation where the, where the old guys, and I put myself in that number, uh, we're, we're getting older. I won't be here forever. 
And when I go, I'm taking some of y'all with me. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I just am. But how do we ensure that that next generation, how, how can Paul ensure that Timothy is going to be able to press on and do the work? All of the apostles are going to be gone. And it's the same old message that Paul reiterates over and over in all his letters in different ways, in different situations. Stick with the book. Not just you, but you teach your children. You need to teach your children how to change the oil in the car, how to change the battery. You might need to teach them. Uh, I, I would love to give you a, a technical illustration now from computers, but you guys know I can't do that. So anyway, you need to teach your daughters how to bake a cake. You teach your sons that too, but you understand. There are these things that we want to teach our kids, but we cannot neglect this. And even more so in a spiritual sense, who are your spiritual sons and daughters? And what are you teaching them? You can have somebody over and, hey, I'm going to show you how to blah, blah, blah. And that's great. But the most important thing we can do for the next generation that is absolutely essential is that we teach them God's word, the truth of the gospel. Teach them. Paul is looking back, not just on his life, but on Timothy's life. I, I, I remember when you told me what it was like, Timothy, growing up. When you were a little boy. When your grandmother was kneading bread. You sat there and listened to her tell the stories of David and Goliath and Daniel and so on and so forth. You heard your grandmother Tell the stories of how her people had longed to see the Messiah, and he's come, and you know him. That's what we must do, brothers and sisters. Will we answer? Will we answer the call, and will we be faithful to the call? And my prayer is that God will grant much grace. The grace that he's given us to make this commitment, that he'll give us the grace to continue on with it. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have called us to yourself and you've opened our eyes to know the truth. And we pray, Father, that you would strengthen in our hearts, in this church, the commitment to your word and to know that on every page we see the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and we have no other hope but him May we teach this to our children. Father, give them eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's join together.